0: Hope y'all doing well. If you have a Bible, you can open up to 1 Corinthians, 1 Corinthians chapter 14. If you don't have one, just grab one of these blue and white ones. Uh, it's in the New Testament. You can look at the uh, table of contents. It's maybe about the 6th or 7th book or something like that in the New Testament. Um, if you don't want one of those, you want a really nice one, you can look in our Lost and Found. There's probably some nice ones in there. No idea where that is, though. Um, so, we're studying through 1 Corinthians, and uh, if you haven't been with us, this is maybe your first week, then I want to uh, kind of let you know what we're doing. So we've been going through First Corinthians uh, a chapter at a time. And so as we do that, we certainly have to cover, in some cases, large amounts of material and, in one setting. And so uh, that, that will be the case today for sure. Chapter 14 is certainly a, a large amount of, of information. But uh, each, each kind of section or each chapter is really sub-chaptered together. So what we've discovered as we've been studying through is chapters 12 through 14 are really one section which is what we've been looking at the last three weeks so we're we're finishing off a little three week kind of understanding of what paul's saying so in chapter 12 he talked about spiritual gifts and chapter 13 and chapter 14 he's going to talk about gifts and and he's put a a little love sandwich you know with the bread of gifts on both sides we're in chapter 13 he talks about from chapter 12 since you're going to have gifts the most important thing you need to know about love is that you should exercise your spiritual gifts in such a way that the love of Christ is displayed through the using of your gifts and you should pursue love. And then as he goes into 14, different than chapter 12, where chapter 12 is kind of about the, uh, the big idea about gifts and what they look like, chapter 14 is going to drive in a little more specifically and talk about the use of those gifts and the ordering of those gifts inside the, the, the gathered assembly uh, of people. We would call that our, our Sunday morning. Uh, And he's going to really focus in on two gifts specifically, prophecy and tongues, and juxtapose those to each other, and and talk about the need to uh, understand that one's greater than the other. So, (coughs) excuse me, I'm going to cough today, I don't want to, but it's going to happen. I've been kind of uh, uh, a throat thing this whole week. So that's what's going on in in the overall picture as we've been looking at chapters 12 through 14. So I'm going to read the entire text in just a second, chapter 14, uh, and then we will we will pray. Before we get there, I want to say one other thing. So last week I mentioned uh, the hurricane in Harvey uh, in Texas, which we've talked about last week a little bit, and so we, we've seen where things are going. Last week it was just, there was two deaths, and, and they're going to be somewhere between 10 to 30 inches, maybe 40, and now we're up to, last I heard, 20 deaths. Um, there were over 50 inches of rain. It was unbelievable. They would say unprecedented hurricane, and so uh, I know that there's there's many of you that want to give, and if you're like me, you're so skeptical. Like, well, these people are good. Is money actually going to go there? You know, is it some guy going to have a yacht from this? Like, what's what's going to happen? I'm going to buy a yacht and help everybody, and then keep the yacht. Like, I don't want to do that. I don't want to donate to that thing. So, uh, if you want to give today, you can. And if you want to write a check, in the check in the memo section, just write. Uh, hurricane relief, Harvey relief, anything like that in the memo, we're going to give as well. We'll take all of your gifts, and we'll give, uh, we're going to give to the S- to the Southern Baptist Convention. They have lots of mo- missionaries that get mobilized, and people that get mobilized, and, and help that gets mo- mobilized down there. And so if you want to give today to them, or even next week, um, you can just write a check to Remedy, and we'll take all of it and give it to the convention. So, um, and w- of that will go, it's not going to, nobody's going to get a yacht out of it, okay, so uh, if you want to do that, that'll be perfectly fine. Now, I'm going to read the text, as we said, in chapter 14, it is lengthy, (coughs) and um, comes for sure with some, uh, some, I told first service this, as I've been preaching through 1 Corinthians, chapter 14 is the hardest chapter I've had to study for, and not only that, I think chapter 14 might be the hardest chapter I've ever had to study for in any sermon, in like 20 years of, of preaching ministry. It is it is a difficult, difficult chapter. So, uh, you know, there's some, uh, there's some questions, and I, I even held this up. I want to make sure you know. This is a helpful resource I've been using this week, Recovering Biblical Manhood and Womanhood. Uh, it's Edited primarily by Piper and Grudem together. There's a series of articles through it. Uh, chapter 6 was really helpful today with D.A. Carson. Uh, it's written from a complementarian stand- standpoint. And this means where um, we believe that men and women are complementarian, men and women are equal in dignity and value and worth. But when it comes to roles in the family and roles in the church, they're different. Obviously, we can look at each other and say, we're different. I'm a man, you're a woman, we look different. God made us different. We don't say that God we're all the same and try to make us all the same. We just say, yay, God made us different. Awesome. Um, and it's good for me. Like, I don't ever have to give birth. So I, I appreciate that part of my uh, role take. Is that I don't have to, I've been in the room six times, and it doesn't look like it feels good. So... Um, Anyway, it's like, well, obviously we're different, right? And so since we're different, a complementary and say we're fine with the role differences. And we, we're, we, when we see uh, in the scriptures where man should be the head of the home as the, the lead servant, we celebrate those things. And so uh, we believe those things. And so this book is obviously coming from that standpoint. But it's particularly helpful. And you'll, you'll see the verse that we're talking about, 34 and 35 where you read it and you're just like, that's so, that's so straightforward and, and difficult. How do I understand that? Which we'll get to. Everybody's already reading 34 and 35. That's fine. That's fine. Uh, but I'm going to start at verse 1. And I'll get to 34 and 35. And we'll all read it together. Uh, at Remedy, we stand as we read the word together. If you're able, would you stand? And then afterwards, I'll say this is the word of the Lord. You'll say, thanks be to God. And this is signifying your love for his word. Your belief in his word. And your desire to want to say yes and be obedient to his word. So uh, chapter 14, verse 1. Pursue love and earnestly desire the spiritual gifts, especially that you may prophesy. For one who speaks in a tongue speaks not to men, but to God. For no one understands him, but he utters mystery in the, uh, mysteries in the spirit. On the other hand, the one who prophesies speaks to people for their upbuilding, encouragement, and consolation. The one who speaks in a tongue builds up himself, but the one who prophesies builds up the church. Now I want to you all, now all. I want you all to speak in tongues, even more, but even more to prophesy. The one who prophesies is greater than the one who speaks in tongues, unless someone interprets so that the church may be built up. Now, brothers, if I come to you speaking in tongues, how will I benefit you unless I bring you some revelation or knowledge or prophecy or teaching? Even if, even if lifeless instruments such as the flute or the harp do not give distinct notes, how will anyone know what is played? And if the bugle gives a distinct an indistinct sound, who will get ready for battle? So with yourselves, if your tongue... If you're you utter speech that is not intelligible, how will anyone know what is said? For you will be speaking into the air. There are doubtless many different languages in the world, and none is without meaning. But if I do not know the meaning of the language, I'll be a foreigner to the speaker, and the speaker a foreigner to me. So with yourselves, since you're eager to man- for manifestations of the Spirit, strive to excel in building up the church. Therefore, one who speaks in a tongue should pray for the power to interpret. For if I pray in a tongue... My spirit prays, but my mind is unfruitful. What am I to do? I will pray with my spirit, but pray with my mind also. I will sing praise with my spirit, but I will sing praise with my mind also. Otherwise, if you give thanks with your spirit, how can anyone in the position of an outsider say amen to your thanksgiving, when it is not what you're saying? For you may be giving thanks well enough, but the other person is not being built up. I thank God... That I speak in tongues more than all of you. Nevertheless, in church I would rather speak five words, in my, with my mind, in order to instruct others, than ten thousand words in a tongue. Brothers, do not be children in your thinking, be infants in evil, but in your thinking be mature. In the law it is written, by people of strange tongues and by the lips of foreigners will I speak to this people, and even when they will not listen to me, and and even then they will not listen to me, says the Lord. Thus tongues are a sign, not for believers, but for unbelievers. While prophecy is a sign, not for unbelievers, but for believers. If therefore the whole church comes together and all speak in tongues and outsiders or unbelievers enter, will they not say you're out of your minds? But if all prophesy and an unbeliever or outsider enters, he is... This is awesome. He is convicted by all. He is called to account by all. The secrets of his heart are disclosed. And so falling on his face, he will worship God and declare that God is really among you. What then, brothers... When you come together, each one has a hymn, a lesson, a revelation, a tongue, or interpretation. Let all things be done for building up. If any speak in a tongue, let there only be two or more, or at most three, each in turn, and let someone interpret. But if there's no one to interpret, let each of them keep silent in the church and speak to himself and to God. Let two or three prophets speak, and let the others weigh what is said. If a revelation is made to another sitting there, let the first be silent. For you all can prophesy one by one, so that all may learn and be encouraged. And the spirits of the prophets Are subject to prophets. For God is not a God of confusion, but of peace. As in all churches of the saints. By the way, 33a can go up or down. It can be, for God is not a God of confusion, but of peace. As in all churches of the saints. Or it can be, starting a new one. As in all churches of the saints, the women should keep silent in the churches. For they are not permitted to speak. For there should be, but should be in submission as the law says. If there is anything they desire to learn, let them ask their husbands at home. For it is shameful for a woman to speak in church. Or was it from you that the word of God came? Are you the only ones that it has reached? If anyone thinks that he is a prophet or spiritual, he should acknowledge that the things I am writing to you are a command of the Lord. If anyone does not recognize this, he is not recognized. So, my brothers, earnestly desire to prophesy. Do not forbid speaking in tongues, but all things should be done decently and in order. This is the word of the Lord. You can be seated. Let's pray. Lord, I, uh, I ask for special help this morning as we look at a lengthy and, and even difficult text. And that you would give me uh, words to communicate that are clear. And that we can understand this. We know that this is your word and you want it to be understood. And so help us understand it, not just for understanding's sake. But instead, Lord, that our hearts and minds would be aflame for affections for Jesus. That we would love Christ more after we've studied this text together. Pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, as we look at 14, as I said, it's, it is difficult. Um, so, I want to make sure that we're all in the same mind frame, in the same mindset, and they're all on the, rank, on the same page. The goal is not just merely understanding this. Although it is difficult, and it'd be fun to understand stuff and be able to tell people, hey, I know and I understand First Corinthians 14. That's fun, right? But, uh, the goal is still the same. And I want to point it to you again. We just read it. Verse 24 and 25. For, for those that don't know Christ, this is one of many, but this is a great goal. Verse 24 and 25. That if someone were to walk in here and be a part of the gathering, or any gathering, at all, in all of Rock Hill, that they would understand the truths of the gospel so well that they would be convicted, be a called to account for their sin, their heart would be disclosed, open to God, they'd fall on their face and worship into God. As a worshipper, And they would say that God is real. They become a Christian. They would repent and put their faith in Christ and be justified. That's, what, that's what's happening in verse 24 and 25. And that would be our, our deep desire for anyone here that doesn't know Christ. And that's our deep desire for everyone that doesn't know Jesus. And so as we read this, and it, it is difficult, let's just remember uh, one of the main things that we want to keep uh, as, the, uh, as the goal is that people that don't know Christ would come to know Christ. The second maybe goal would be for those that are believers. And we read it all throughout chapter 14. And you can see it as we go through, but I'm just going to point to one place, but there are numerous places where it says that we would the church would be built up. You can see it right there at the end of four. We want to build up the church so that we want the church, that means the, the gathering of the people of God. doesn't mean a building. It means us, the people, that we would be edified and built up and grown up into our faith. So, uh, this chapter is, is divided into two major sections. So you've got verses 1 through 25 as one section, and you've got verses 26 through 40 as the other section. So go ahead and put up the first one so you can see. Verses 1 through 25 is the main section, and the big idea of that is the need for intelligibility in the assembly. And so uh, if there's going to be gifts exercised, if people are going to use their spiritual gifts, and here we're going to be looking just at prophecy and, and, and tongues, if there is a need whenever those gifts are exercised that there's intelligibility. That means that, that people here understand it. If they don't understand what's going on, then it doesn't help them. It doesn't grow them. And it certainly doesn't edify them. It doesn't build up the church. We've, we've already seen in 12.7 that each is one is given this manifestation of the Spirit. And this just means a, a spiritual gift for the common good. So your, your spiritual gift is given to you primarily so that others grow. Of course you can grow from it. Praise God that you do. But the primary reason that you've been given a spiritual gift is so that you use it so that others grow. And over and over and over in chapter 14, you're going to see that we want to see the church grow, the church be built up, the church be edified. Uh, So as we look at verses 1 through 5, this need for intelligibility uh, in the assembly, the first five verses, Paul is going to emphasize his preference for prophecy. He has a preference towards prophecy, and that means over tongues. He thinks that prophecy serves and and works better for the intelligibility of the assembly, and for the edification of the church to happen, uh, better if there's prophecy, not tongues. Paul in this chapter, D.A. Carson says, draws a distinction between the two, which are prophecy and tongues, uh, which for the Corinthians were not drawing a distinction. They were saying, tongues are better, uh, and he's trying to reverse the rank on which the basis of which best edifies the church. They were They were tongue speakers. They loved speaking in tongues and in their minds it was better. And Paul's trying to reverse the rank. So we can see in verse 1 pursue love. And that's continuing on in this idea uh, from chapter 13. uh, Resuming uh, his idea from 1231 uh, in chapter 13 where he tells us that we need to pursue love and desire the greater spiritual gifts especially the gift of prophecy. Pursue love and earnestly desire the spiritual gifts. Especially that you may prophesy. He has a preference towards prophecy because he thinks between the two, it serves as a much better way to be more intelligible in the church, more understandable in the church. And so you can see in verse 2, four, one who speaks in a tongue speaks not to men but to God and utters mystery uh, and, and no one understands him. He utters mysteries to the spirit. On the other hand, the one who prophesies speaks to the people for their upbuilding and encouragement and consolation. So, we see here that he has a preference towards prophecy over tongue. So let's stop and let's just define those two. Let's understand those two, what they are and, and why he has a preference for them. So the gift, we, we did this two weeks ago, but the gift of prophecy is this. Anybody can have it. Men can have it. Women can have it. Anybody can have it. Uh, It's helpful if a pastor who preaches has it, because it helps him preach better, but anybody can have the gift of prophecy. The gift of prophecy in the New Testament is this. It's when you've grasped the meaning of Scripture in such a way that you've perceived that it has a massive, powerful relevance, and it can have a and a powerful impact as you speak that word towards a particular culture, a particular group, towards a particular thing. So it's, it's not just knowing scripture. It's also knowing the culture around you and being able to take the, the word or the meaning of scripture and taking it and telling it into this particular problem of this particular culture in such a way that it speaks life into the individual or the church or the society that you're talking to so that they... Uh, they grow from it and they are able to take God's word and apply it into present day situations. So that's the gift of prophecy. You, that certainly is helpful in preaching, right? But it's also helpful for you sitting across from your, your grown adult child that's, that's, you know, 25 and has a big problem in their life. And you can say, here's what God's word says over coffee one Sunday morning or, or whatever. So it, it, it applies to in any kind of certain situations. In, Whenever you have the gift of prophecy, you usually will declare that message pretty fearlessly because you trust the Lord and you know His, His, His Word speaks into all cultures. That's the gift of prophecy. Anybody can have it. You can have it in preaching. You can have it in one-on-one situations, you know, at Tuesday lunch. The gift of tongues is this. This is from Grudem. It's a form of prayer uh, or praise that you express to God in a language that you don't understand. You're saying something. It can be prayer or praise to God, but as you say it, you don't understand it. You need someone to interpret it. Someone has to interpret it to you. That's the gift of tongues. So, we can see why, obviously, Paul has a preference towards prophecy, because, as he says, tongues, you speak to, not to men, but to God, and no one understands it, but, in verse 3, but prophecy speaks to people for their upbuilding and their encouragement. In verse 4, the one who speaks in a tongue builds up himself, but the one who prophesies builds up the church. Now, I want you all to speak in tongues, but even more, I want you to prophesy. So, the point is clear. That edification is, or uh, growing up or being built up in the church is Paul's greatest concern. And he says that that comes best by using the gift of prophecy. Uh, so, that's, that's verses 1 through 5. And that's, that's the preference towards prophecy uh, and why There's more intelligibility in the church if prophecy is used. Now, as he goes to verse 6, he's going to talk about edification and how it depends on the intelligibility intelligibility. of the gift. Go to to B. Uh, So, verses 6-12 is edification depends on intelligibility. And We already said Paul has a massive leaning towards uh, intelligibility. Not only that, he wants the church to be built up. So, if the church is going to be built up, then it depends on when you exercise your gift, whether it be tongues or prophecy, that they understand it. You can't be edified to the greatest degree if you don't understand what I'm saying, right? And so he's going to explain to us why uh, if, you're going to do, if you're going to exercise your spiritual gift in the, in the church, why you need to do it in such a way that's going to be edifying to other people. And he's going to do that by having three illustrations. You can see it. Now, brothers, if I come to you speaking in tongues, how will I benefit you unless you bring... Some revelation or knowledge or prophecy or teaching. So you've got revelation and knowledge. These are the content and you've got prophecy and teaching. They're the form of the content. God gives a revelation. He gives us knowledge and the way that we express the revelation or express the knowledge is through prophecy or through teaching. That's the form of the content. And he's going to tell us that if you're going to edify somebody by the exercise of your gift, be it prophecy or tongues, then uh, there's a great need that people understand you. It's common sense, right? But he does this through three illustrations. The three illustrations are the flute, harp, the military, bugle, and foreign languages. So let's look at the first one. And I'll build on these three. And as I build on these three, they're going to make sense to you. But then I'll I'll drive the point home about what he's saying. So you can see the first one in verse 7. Even if a lifeless instrument, such as the flute or the harp, does not give distinct notes, how will anyone know what is played? In other words, when someone plays the flute or the harp or even the guitar, right? If you pick it up and you play distinct notes in a coherent order, then it brings joy to you. If I pick up Jordan's guitar and I just start playing random notes out a key and that, with no discerning order at all, you just stop, stop, stop. I hate it. So, but if I play Amazing Grace and I start, you know, or Jordan plays Amazing Grace, or maybe I can. We play Amazing Grace and it's in distinct order and you understand it and you already know that melody then it starts bringing joy to the listener like you enjoy that so that's the first thing as we see in this illustration uh, distinct notes played in coherent order bring joy to the listener we also have the bugle the military bugle Uh, the military bugle back in the day is you play one little note and everybody knows to charge you play another kind of note or or sound everybody knows to get out of there and they need to know them like and if you you don't have that then they don't know whether to go forward or or backward they don't know and if they think they're supposed to go forward when they're supposed to go back they're all going to die right so it's important so in verse 8 if the bugle gives an indistinct sound who's going to get ready for battle so um, like in the flute or harp scenario distinct notes played in coherent order bring joy to the listener for the military bugle distinct notes from the bugle in battle elicit obedience for the listener so I know whether to obey or not. I don't know how to obey or not. I know whether to go forward or backward. I know what to do. The third one is the foreign language, which you can see. We can keep reading. So with yourselves, if your tongue, if you utter speech that is not intelligible, how will anyone know what's said? For you are speaking into the air. There are doubtless many different languages in the world. Here's the third one. And none is without meaning. But if I do not know the meaning of the language, I'll be a foreigner to the speaker, and the speaker a foreigner to me. So if someone's going to talk to me in a language... And I don't know the language, I can't understand it. That's pretty understandable. So the third one is distinct words from the language should create understanding for the listener. So in those three illustrations, we see distinct notes being joy, distinct notes bringing obedience, and distinct words in the language creating understanding. So here's the point. As we're looking at the edification depends on the intelligibility of the gift. If you're going to be edified, if you're going to truly grow, and I'm going to use my gift to try to help you grow, you need to be able to understand what I'm saying. And so that's, that's the point of what he's trying to say with these, with these three examples. The point is, similarly, you want to use your gifts in such a way, when you use those, people understand them. And when they understand them, they understand God better, like the foreign language. They have joy in God more, like the flute harp. And they want to obey God now, like the military bugle. You want to use our gifts in such a way that when I exercise them, you understand God more, you have joy in God more, and now you want to obey God more. That's the point of using the gifts. That's the way edification depends on intelligibility. If, I, if I'm just using my gift, but I'm, you know, and it just sounds like this, you're just like, ah, I don't understand what you're saying. How am I supposed to enjoy God more, or etc. How am I supposed to understand God more? How am I supposed to um, obey God now? It doesn't make any sense to me. But whenever we exercise our gifts in, in a ways that bring understanding to you, then you're going to have joy in God, you're going to want to obey God, and you certainly are going to understand Him. <clears throat> so that's the next section. Now, those two sections are the easiest to understand. <laughs> we start getting into the more hairy, like, what stuff now. So, you know, put on your seatbelt, take a sip of coffee, get a cup of coffee. Dows it down your throat and understand me. So here we go. Try to follow. Um, First service followed. So, and y'all are smarter than them. Because you come to second, right? You know that you can sleep in on Sunday. That's smart. Uh, That's what I would do. Anyway, verse 13. Verse 13. So here's the thing. In verses 13 through 19... He's going to start giving uh, applications. He's going to start making some stipulations. If you're going to use tongues, if you're going to use your gifts, I want to make sure there's some, some things that you need to know about it. Since we've already said everybody needs to understand. Now, if you're going to un- make sure that they understand, let, let's put some parameters. Let's start giving some hooks to making sure you, you know how that looks. Go ahead and to the next one. So application or stipulations to the believing community of tongue speakers. If you're, going to be, if you're going to be a tongue speaker and you're going to use it in the community, I want you to know there's some things that it's got to look like. Here's some things I think that it should look like. All right, you can see the first one in verse 13. It is straightforward and easy. Therefore, one who speaks in a tongue should pray for the power to interpret. If you're going to speak in tongues, it needs to be intelligible. It needs to build up people. They need to grow, understand Lord, love the Lord more. So if if you're gonna speak in a tongue, they need to know what it means. So you should pray for the power to interpret. So first, you should pray to interpret the tongue. You should pray to interpret the tongue. Um, verse 14, now if I pray in a tongue, my spirit prays, but my mind is unfruitful. I want to interject here that we're not introducing a new subject. I know 13 says, speak in a tongue, and 14 says, pray in a tongue, but this is not a new kind of tongue. This is not a new subject. This is not a switch from speaking in tongues to praying in tongues. This is still just speaking in tongues. Um, Because as we've already said, in 14, Two, for one who speaks in a tongue, speaks to God, which is praying. So tongues are primarily to God anyway. So speaking in tongues, praying in tongues are the same thing because they're to God anyway. So this is not a new uh, type of category where there's prayer tongues and speak tongues. This is all tongues and they're all to God. So if I, you could just read that also. If I pray or speak it to God in a tongue, it's the same thing. He says, my spirit prays, but my mind is unfruitful. So this is a valid prayer that's being prayed towards God. Because any prayer towards God, whether we know what we're saying or not, is, is valid. Nevertheless, Paul's saying that it's unfruitful. Or at least not as fruitful as it could be. In verse 14, uh, for if I pray in a tongue, my spirit prays, but my mind is unfruitful. Why is it unfruitful? It's unfruitful because it's not as fully engaged as it could be. Because it does not understand everything that it's saying. If you're praying in a tongue, and that means a foreign language that you don't understand, you're praying to God, and that's a good prayer, but you don't know what you're saying. So it's unfruitful in the sense that my mind's not fully engaged because I don't know what I'm saying. And if I know what I'm saying, then it's more fruitful. It's, it's better for me to know what I'm saying. That, that's just practical, right? That's, that's obvious stuff. Captain Obvious is standing up here saying, we know that, fun, all right? So this um, so goes, what am I to do then? I will pray with my spirit, but I want to pray with my mind also. So what he's trying to tell us here is this. Um, that being the case. In this verse. It means that if I speak in a tongue. I don't want to just speak in a tongue. And not understand it. I want my, my mind to be fully engaged. And so the way that happens then. Since I want my mind fully engaged is. Verse 13. I I've prayed for the power to interpret it. Hopefully the Lord will give that to me. Um, and that will help me have my mind fully engaged. But. If not, then my mind will not be fully engaged. But that's what I want. And he says that's the case with singing as well. I'll sing praise with my spirit, but also I'll sing with my mind also. I want to be fully engaged because I fully understand it. Now, after that, he tells us this. And this is going to lead into our second uh, application stipulation. Otherwise, if you give thanks with your spirit, how can anyone in the position of an outsider say amen? Now, outsider, this this is a tough word. On Outsider, you see there's a little one beside it, and you have a little note down at the bottom, and it says, of, or him that is without gifts. And that's, that's a good one, but it still leaves it pretty generic enough, you're like, well, what does it mean? It could mean, Outsider could mean, one who's without gifts, because he's not a Christian. So of course he doesn't have spiritual gifts. Or it could mean, it could mean Outsider, as in he's a Christian, but he doesn't have the gift of tongues. He's an outsider to the gift of tongues. Now, I think that it means outsider to the gift of tongues, but he's a Christian. Not that it means outsider as he's, not a, not, he's a non-believer, which is difficult, right? I, believe, I understand it's difficult because if you just remember, I've already pointed to verse 24 where it has an unbeliever and an outsider enters. And so coupled with that language from verse 24, that sounds like outsider means unbeliever. Well, even in 24, it could mean unbeliever and someone that's just like doesn't come to remedy, but it's a Christian, doesn't come to our church. Outsider, in that sense, just means not from here. Could be Christian, could be not. Back over to here. Back over to 16. The reason why, uh, and I think this is a good reason, the reason why I think outsider, in verse 16, means a Christian that doesn't have the gift of tongues is because there, in verses 16 and 17, he's supposed to do something. And the things that that he's supposed to do are things that Christians do. Watch. Verse 16. How can anyone in the position of an outsider say amen to your thanksgiving? Amen, thanks be to God, yes Lord, praise you for that. That's something that Christians do. Christians do those things because they're, they're receiving it. An even greater reason is verse 17, for you may be giving thanks well enough, but the other person, that's the outsider, here it is, is not being built up. Christians get built up. Non-Christians become Christians and then get built up. Christians get built up. So I think just even those, con- contextually, right there in the text, it. That they say amen and that they're built up shows us that outsider is probably a Christian. So if that's the case then, the second stipulation is starting to form for us in verses 16 and 17. That if you're going to exercise tongues, that they're supposed to be for the body and they're building up. So the first one is that you need to pray for the power to interpret. The second one is tongues are supposed to be for the body. So anytime you exercise a tongue, if you have the gift of tongues or you know someone that has the gift of tongues... There's a definite need for them to want to interpret it or else their mind is unfruitful and it's not fully engaged. And not only that, that they would use it to build up the body first, not just themselves. That's contra to most thought about tongues. It's contra to most thought. And then in verse 17 and 18, 18, Paul is going to say something in 19 that's just, I mean, it's just amazing. It's absolutely astounding what he says here. We've already seen the first stipulations that you should pray for the power to interpret. The second one about stipulation is that tongues are for the body. This third one, in regard to how it should look in the, in the, in the assembly, the gather together tongues should look in the assembly, is pretty amazing. All right, verse 18. Paul is going to, uh, as a wise pastor, kind of identify himself with them. He says, I thank God that I speak in tongues more than all of you. Hey, Corinthians, you're all about tongues and you think they're greater. I speak tongues too, just like you. I'm just, we're, we're alike. So he's already kind of like we're ingratiating himself to them. We're li- alike. But not only that, you think you speak in tongues. I'm, pretty, I'm actually better at it. And I do it more. And I, I thank God that I speak tongues better than all of you. And so since that's the case, uh, if I have something to say about tongues, then you should listen to it. I don't have to listen to you. What I have to say makes more sense and is from, from the Lord. Since I thank God I speak tongues better than all of you. So he, he's, he's ingratiating themselves. But then he's going to make sure he's going to kind of take that moral authority piece. Where it's like, and if I have something to say, you have to listen to me. And he's going to say it in verse 19. And it's, it's if, if you get to read it twice, just to maybe like, did he just say that? Nevertheless, watch this. In church, and the gathered together of the saints. So we're talking about this specific assembly. I would rather speak five words with my mind in order to instruct others. And we can just... Insert prophecy. I think that just means prophecy. In the context, it just makes sense in prophecy. Then 10,000 words in a tongue. In Greek, 10,000 uh, is probably the highest number. It, to them, it just meant infinity, right? So he's saying, if I'm gathered together in the same, with all the saints, I would rather just speak five words of prophecy than 10, infinity words of tongues. Jesus died for your sin. I don't need to say anything else. I don't have to speak any tongues, that's all that's good. I'd rather do that right there and just, just leave it at that than start going into tongues and speak infinity tongues. Now, D.A. Carson points this out, and this is utterly amazing. Remember, they're talking about tongues in the service, right? And Paul just said, I don't. I speak tongues better than all of you, and I'm never going to speak tongues in the church. D.A. Carson says it this way. If Paul speaks tongues more than all the Corinthians, and yet in church he perseveres, prefers to just speak five intelligible words than 10,000 words in a tongue, which is his way of saying that under virtually no circumstance will he ever speak tongues in a church, then when will he speak them? The only possible conclusion is that Paul only exercised his remarkable gift of tongues in private. That's the only thing we can come to. So the third application, stipulation that Paul lays forward, isn't FUD, Paul lays forward, is this, number three, tongues should likely be reserved for private prayer. Hence, at least implicitly, not in the service. Not in the service. That seems to be what he's saying. I would rather speak five words of prophecy and never speak in tongues ever. If Paul says that, then we can, we can take a pretty good guess that that's what he, that what he means. Now we're going to come in just a second to the fact that there still will happen, happen to be tongues and services, and he's going to put some, some outlines and guidelines on it. He, he said that, but he knows it's still going to happen, right? Not just in Corinth, but for the next 2,000 years, and he's still going to put some guidelines on it. But I think that's a pretty strong case that he's making, that it doesn't really ever need to happen in the service. That's what it seems to be what Paul's saying. That might be controversial. Maybe not. So, uh, after that, he's going to talk about the need to understand uh, and ap- apply this to unbelievers and outsiders. So uh, D, you can go ahead and put up D. Uh, application, this is verses 20 through 25. This last little section here is the application. And this is, man, this has got a tough verse too. So brothers, again, wise Paul, he's calling them brothers, softening them up, and then also going to call them immature babies. So, you know, that's Paul. Uh, brothers, don't be children in your thinking. Be infinite evil, but in your thinking be mature. Brothers, you're... Bes- You're infantile and immature, is basically what he's saying. He exhorts them thus to be mature. F.F. Bruce says, the immature Christian, specifically in Corinth here, has an over-concentration on tongues. And for him, that's a sign of immaturity, not a sign of maturity. Uh, The over-emphasis, an over-concentration on tongues. Maturity is whenever we focus on the finished work of the cross of Christ. It's whenever we think about what, even what Jordan said, we remember what Christ has done for us. That he gave his life for us, putting his uh, own body on the cross instead of us, willingly receiving all the wrath of the Father instead of us. And we remember what he's done, that he bore all the wrath for us. And when he died, he resurrected, he defeated Satan, sin, and death. And we remember that he gave his life for us so that we could be forgiven. And then we rest in that. That means I don't have to do anything now. There's no earning right relationship with Jesus. He's done it all. I remember what He's done, and then instead of trying to say, "Oh, thank you for," it, let me try to ingratiate myself, and let me try to do some. Let me get on the treadmill. No, no, I just rest. I'm all about rest. That's awesome, right? We rest, rest in that. Remember it, and then stop trying to earn God's good graces because they're fully given to you now, only in Christ. And then after we've done that, we reciprocate, we r- respond, we rejoice. Our hearts, because we've done these two things, should be so affectionate for what he's done that we want to pour out praise to him. We want to live our lives as a worship service to him. And so, we need to remember these things. That's mature thinking. And he exhorts us to be mature in our thinking. And then he says this. (coughs) In the law, now, you could go a lot of places there if you're an Old Testament scholar. We automatically think well, that just means the first five books of the Bible. That's what's generally referred to as the law. Uh, sometimes the whole Old Testament corpus is also referred to as the law. So in the law, he's talking about the whole Old Testament. And I just know that because as he quotes afterward, he quotes Isaiah, which is a prophet. So I, I think it just means you could say in the Old Testament, it is written specifically Isaiah. It says this, he's quoting Isaiah 28, 11, 28, 11. by people of strange tongues, And by the lips of foreigners will I speak to this people. And even then, they will not listen to me, says the Lord. That quote in verse 21 explains verses 22 through 25. If you don't understand the quote, and in its context, from Isaiah 28, 11, you'll likely misunderstand verses 22 through 25. Here's how you'll misunderstand it. I'll go ahead and explain it, because you just read it, and you're like, God sounds like he's contradicting himself. Anytime you think God's contradicting himself, it just means, whenever I think that, it's like, you don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> just, it's always think it that way, right? So here, I'll show you the contradiction, right? That, the perceived contradiction. Verse 22. Thus tongues are a sign, not for believers, but for unbelievers. Here it tells us signs, uh, uh, tongues are a sign for unbelievers. If you keep reading, it says, Uh, While prophecy is not a sign for unbelievers, but for believers. Tongues for unbelievers. Prophecy for believers. Prophecy for believers. Not for unbelievers. Unbelievers tongues. So what happens when an unbeliever is faced with prophecy, which is not for him? Well, we would think something bad. But verse 24 and 25 say, But if all prophesy and an unbeliever comes in, he's convicted by all. Called to account. The secret's of hearts are disclosed. Falling on his face. He'll worship God. Declare he's really among you. That sounds like it's actually for him if prophecy's not for him and, he, and that happens, I'm pro that, right? That, that, that seems like prima facie on the face of it. There's a contradiction, but there's not. There's not because Paul explains it with verse 21. So verse 21, in the law, it's written. So here's what's happening in verse 21. In verse 21, this Old Testament passage that's being quoted is not good, This is when the Assyrian army visited God's people. The Assyrian army, who are the the strange tongues, they came in speaking a a language they didn't understand. And whenever they came in, they brought judgment to God's people who were not walking with God. So the sign that came to them was not a good sign. It was a bad sign. It was a sign of judgment. So the sign given to unbelievers from tongues is not a good sign. It's a bad sign. And so... Here, when we understand that, this means that they they heard tongues. They didn't understand what was going on, but they also were given a judgment. They did understand that when they lost their land. So, in a similar way, whenever unbelievers hear tongues, they don't understand what's going on, but yet it still gives them a judgment, which they do understand. Which is, I'm face by face before I'm face by face face to face with a holy God. That I don't know, and that has a has called me to repentance. And I got to decide whether I want to do it or not. So. When we understand that. Then we see that tongues are a sign. Not for believers. But for unbelievers. This, this word sign in the Greek. Se Is literally not positive or negative. It just means an indication of God's attitude. The sign is giving you an indication of God's attitude. So that means um, tongues. ...are a negative sign for unbelievers. An indication of God's attitude towards unbelievers... ...is that the wrath of God is on them. And the signs, the tongues help them understand... ...that there is a God and the wrath of God is on them. They don't understand it, but they understand the judgment. They just don't understand the words. Therefore, in the same way, prophecy is a sign for believers... But a positive seimeon, a positive indication of God's attitude, that God is for them, God that loves them, that Christ has died for them, and that they can understand that. So when we see that tongues are a sign for believers, uh, are not a sign for believers, but for unbelievers, there's no judgment on believers, but there's judgment on unbelievers. And therefore, when we say prophecy is a sign for unbelievers, but, uh, not for unbelievers, but for believers, prophecy exhorts believers towards things so if everyone the whole church comes together and speaks in tongues and an outsider or unbelievers comes they'll just think you're out of your mind they'll think these people don't know what they're talking about but the unbeliever and outsider still understands god's wrath is on me but i don't understand anything that's going on here but if they go to a church that has prophecy an unbeliever outsider enters Here's what happens. He's convicted by all. He's called to account by all. The seekers of his heart is closed. You can, you can go ahead and put this up. The, notice the steps of what happens of repentance. He's convicted. He's called into account. His heart is disclosed. He falls on his face as a worshiper towards God. He declares God is real. That means he becomes a Christian. And he practices repentance and faith. And D.A. Carson points out this amazing thing. This, this amazing insight. He says, therefore, this means that although prophecy serves as a positive sign towards believers... Prophecy also has a positive effect on unbelievers. Even though tongues is for unbelievers as a sign of judgment, prophecy also serves and has a positive effect towards unbelievers in that they get saved. <laughs> so that's good. So even, even prophecy has a positive effect towards unbelievers. So what we notice then, if we're, if we're wrapping up all of 1 through 25, is the thing that we've made the entire time. There's need for intelligibility in the assembly Not only is there a need for intelligibility in the assembly for believers, there's a need for intelligibility for unbelievers so they can get saved. That's the point he's trying to make. Intelligibility is necessary for everyone there, not just unbelievers. So that just means real practically, whenever any of us preach here, I'm preaching towards believers. Church is for believers. But I am absolutely knowledgeable that unbelievers are here and I need to speak to them so that they understand. I don't want to speak in a a magic code just for believers so we all get it and like you don't get it because you're not part of the team, right? I want to speak in such a way that everybody understands, that everybody hears and understands the gospel and has a chance to understand what Christ has done and put their faith in what Christ has done or as believers be encouraged on that and continually trust in the gospel. That's the point, right? That unbelievers also understand. Now, in verse 26, he switches over to the other section. Uh, and you should know that um, as he's given these stipulations in verse 26, what Paul's assuming is you believe and understand and you're on, pa- on, on, on page with me. You're like, yes, to verses 1 through 25. If you agree with me with verses 1 25, verses 26 and the following are going to make sense. He's assuming that you're following with him and assuming that you agree with what you just read. So in verse 26, he's going into this and he's saying, all right, I've already said that probably tongues should never be used in the service. However, I'm aware that they're going to be used in service. So what I'm going to do now in verses 26 through 40 is I'm going to give guidelines for what tongues should look like in the service. and I'm going to give guidelines for what prophecy should look like in a service in 26 through 40. He's going to get real practical. And he's assuming that you agree with verses 1 through 25. Verse 26, he kind of gives this general listing of gifts that are seen and heard in the gathering. 26 is just kind of a big broad verse. What then, brothers, when you come together... And each one has a hymn or a lesson or revelation or tongue and interpretation. Let all things be done for building up over and over and over. This is a general list of the gifts that you can see and hear in a gathering. And he doesn't want tongues to be the dominant thing of the service because there's other things that need to be in the service, like uh, a a lesson and singing, things like that. So if tongues take up the whole service, you're missing out on the other elements of the service. And he doesn't want tongues to be the the dominant thing. That's why he gives these guidelines. (coughs) So... The first thing you're going to see are the guidelines for tongues. You can go to put up the first one. The first thing you're going to see are guidelines for tongues in 28 through 26 through 28. Um, if anyone speaks in a tongue, let there be only two or most at three. So the first guideline is at the most only two or three should speak. You can put up guideline one, the first one, and the and this the reason why is the overall concern of Paul and is that and. and really Jesus, is to ensure that tongues don't dominate the worship service. So two or three, after that, done. Anybody else got one? You can wait till next week. (laughs) God will bless us with that next week and he's sovereign enough to be fine with it, right? So two or three people. The next one you can see is right there. Uh, Two or three at most and each in turn in verse 27. So the next one is when someone speaks in tongues, it should be one at a time. Number two, when someone speaks out of tongues, it should be one at a time. And this is just, again, to keep the services from being out of order, to be out of order and for tongues not to dominate. The third one, you can see right there, and let someone interpret. All there in verse 27, number three, you can put it up. There must be an interpreter. And Paul's instruction for interpreter keeps this order, the order of services are orderly and attempts uh, to keep people from saying things that are unbiblical. And it guarantees that any kind of things that's being said are from God. They're from God. So there must be an interpreter. That's the guidelines for the tongues. And then right after that, he's going to give uh, some stipulations in verse 28. There's only one big stipulation for tongues. He gives it to you right there. In, he's going to give guidelines and stipulations. Before we go further, let me just explain how this is going to look, okay? So for tongues, he has three guidelines and he has a stipulation. The three guidelines are in 27. 28's the stipulation. For prophecy, he has two guidelines. Two guidelines. Both of those guidelines are in verse 29. You can see, let two or three prophets speak. Guideline one. Um, and let their others weigh in. Guideline two. And then what he's going to do is he's going to take that guideline one of prophecy and he's going to make some stipulations about it in 30 through 35. So guideline one, let two or three speak. The stipulations are in 30 through 35. Anybody have a revelation, et cetera. We'll come to that, I promise. And then guideline number two in 29B, which is there should be, uh, as it says, the others weighing in, that others weighing in. He's going to put some stipulations on that in verses 34, 35. So we're coming to that. Uh, I have to move around because that's how I compartmentalize my head. Hopefully that that helps you and you don't make fun of me. All right, so the stipulation you can see. Go ahead to the next slide. The stipulation for tongues is verse 28 or constraint or stipulation is. But if there's no one to interpret, let each one of them keep silent in church and speak to himself and to God. So if if it's not happening and it's not going in order, then here's what needs to happen. Constraint needs to happen. Everybody just needs to be quiet and pray to themselves and that's it. Go back over to the other text. They're praying to God. Their mind's unfruitful, but that's just what it's going to be. That's it. All right, now he's going to switch over to prophecy. You can see the switch. It's really obvious in 29. Let two or three prophets speak. So there's two guidelines for prophecy. We're moving over. You can go ahead to the next section. Guidelines on prophecy. One, there should be two or three speak. Put it up. There should be two or three speak. For the same reason. Because he doesn't want it to dominate, and he also wants to keep order. The second one, And this one is huge, huge. I cannot emphasize how big the second guideline is. 29, let the others weigh what is said. Put it up. Let the others weigh what is. There should be an oral weighing in on the veracity, the truthfulness of the prophecy. That one is massive in understanding verses 34 and 35. Massive in understanding verses 34 and 35. So there's two guidelines, right? There's two or three should speak. And there has to be, an after those people speak, a group or collection of people that talk about and have an oral weighing in on what was just said, because it was in our language and we can all understand it, if that is in line with Scripture and true, the veracity of it. We need to talk about that. That's the second guideline. Now, he's going to give some stipulations on that first one. Only two or three should speak. See that first one? Only two or three should speak. He's going to give some stipulations or... Some constraints in verses 30 through 33. Look at them. If you're going to prophesy and only two or three, you need to know this. If a revelation can be made to another sitting there, let the first be silent. So if the first one's going and then the second one has it, first one just needs to sit down and let the second one go. And then he says, uh, for you all can prophesy one by one so that all may learn and all may be encouraged. Everybody needs to learn and be encouraged when people prophesy. And the spirits of the prophets are subject to the prophets. That just means essentially that the utterances that are being made by the uh, that are made by the subject, uh, the utterances made are subject to the speaker making them in terms of timing. So it just means this: the Holy Spirit is absolutely sovereign enough to let, to give people their prophecies one at a time. And it's not like everybody's like, "God gave it to me. I gotta go." And He's going. We're all going to yell at the same time. Like the, the Holy Spirit sovereign enough to let one dude go, and then boom, bang, you can go. He, he's cool like that. He's, he's able to handle it, right? He's the Holy Spirit. He's pretty awesome, right? That's basically what it's saying. The spirits of the prophets are subject to the prophets. And then to remind you, for God is not a God of confusion, but a God of peace. That's the stipulations on understanding the one. Now, the stipulations for the oral weighing is in verses 34 through 35. Before I start, let's say a couple things, all right? I want to make sure we understand, because I read verse 34 and 35. I'm like, man, that's just so, like, straightforwardly said and it's so dogmatic and it's so all-encompassing as in all the churches of the saints the women should remain silent it's not like he's saying hey just in corinth i need for you to remember this because it only applies to you let let me say a couple things one there's not i'm going to air quote it there's not a greater feminist in the world than jesus right jesus is the greatest feminist ever he understands and loves women better than anybody he gave them life. He created the idea of women. And since he created the idea, he's pro-woman. He, there's no one that's more pro-woman and, than Jesus Christ. So when we read things that he wrote, we can't think, oh, Jesus hates women. That's, that's ridiculous. Because there's no one that's more pro-woman than Jesus. And so when we read this, we have to try to figure out what's going on. What's happening here? Um, there's a lot of takes on this. And as I said, this particular book, I found really helpful. There there was about seven different uh, interpretations of 34 and 35 until he weighed in on his. I found his to be the most convincing. Um, There's been some that have said it's cultural. I, I, I don't think that that's the case. I used to think that's the case. I don't think that's the case. I think it's actually something different. I think... If we're going to understand what's going on in First Corinthians 14, specifically these verses, as in all the churches of saints, the women should keep silent in the churches for they're not permitted to speak, but should be in submission as the law says. If there's anything they desire to learn, let them ask their husbands at home for it is shameful for a woman to speak in church. Woo, that's just so like, oh. All right, not only is Jesus um, more pro-woman than anybody ever and wants to use women and gifts women like crazy to do amazing things all throughout church history, Something you should know about Paul is, Paul's not a moron, right? Paul has complete understanding that in chapter 11, verse 5, he literally just said that women can pray out loud in the service and prophesy out loud in the service. And he didn't forget it that he wrote it like three chapters ago. I'll read it to you. Chapter 11, verse 5 says, But every wife, that that, that word wife, uh, there's only one word in, in, in Greek, gune." And and by context, you can decide, is this supposed to be woman or is this supposed to be wife? We have two words, wife and woman. They just have gune. And you can decide, well, is it wife or is it woman? I think it's actually woman here because I don't think it's just restricted to you. You gotta be married before you can prophesy in church. I think single women can prophesy in church as well. So basically it says, but every woman who prays or prophesies, then he goes on with the head uncovered. That's not really the point I'm trying to make today. But certainly he just said, And he would have said, and they're not allowed to, so just don't let them. So he's implicitly, and maybe even explicitly saying, women can can prophesy and women can pray in the church. So as he's writing this right here, for they're not allowed to speak, he hasn't forgotten that he just said they can pray and prophesy. All right? So what I think is going on in verses 34 and 35 is this. He's putting a stipulation specifically on the second guideline there should be an oral weighing in on the veracity of the prophecy. So after someone prophesies, because women can prophesy in church or pray or read scripture or sing or any number of things, um, the actual uh, weighing in, the the oral weighing in on the veracity of the, the truthfulness of that prophecy should be done by men. And I think that that lines up with what we read in 1 Timothy 2 more. So in 1 Timothy 2, this is coming from a complementarian that thinks that uh, the office of elder is reserved for men, but basically almost anything else a woman can do in the church. 1 Timothy 2 in context says, let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. I do not permit a woman to teach or exercise and that, that teach or exercise, when you put those two uh, verbs together that means teaching is exercising authority to teach or to exercise authority over man. Rather, she's remained quiet. For Adam was formed first, and Eve, and Adam was not deceived as the woman was deceived, and she became the transgressor. And if you keep reading First Timothy three, the only distinct title or distinct qualification between elder and deacon is teaching, and so that means elders in my mind as I read it and study. And it's not just not me, but you know, most orthodox Christian complementarian that our christians say that means the office of elder is reserved for men so that means this would be something that an elder probably would do a man that's probably an elder i'm not willing to say for sure uh that the oral weighing in on the veracity of the truthfulness of the prophecy should only be elders because the text doesn't say that but i can say it shouldn't be women i I don't want to go further than the text says but i do think this means as i read verses 34 the only thing that makes sense as I read 34 and 35, because Paul's already said that they can talk in the service, is whenever they do that second thing, they weigh in on the veracity of the prophecy that that should be reserved uh, for men. Why? You can ask Jesus when you get to heaven. <laughs> I don't know, but that's what he said. That's what it seems to be as I look at the whole of scripture, the whole of how Jesus loves women. I mean, G- God in his sovereignty wanted the first person to find him out of the grave to be a woman. And he knew that women's claims and that society weren't even like listened to. And he still wanted the woman to be the one that goes and tells everybody, hey, that that grave's empty. Well, your your say doesn't count. Well, Jesus brought me here. What are you gonna do, right? So Jesus is the most pro-woman person ever. And so I think the best way to understand this is that for some reason, uh, there must be a teaching Aspect Related to the oral weighing in on this Truthfulness of this prophecy That Paul wants to reserve for men only Maybe even elders only That would be my guess But it doesn't say that in the text So I don't want to go further than it says So after that In verse 36 through 40 Paul's going to bring things to a conclusion You can put up the last one e. um, I skipped D uh, D was what I just said That there should be done by men only I changed my, my outline between services. You get the better outline. All right, so E is this. He's, he's cl- concluding. He's going to have a little confrontation in 36 through 38. And then he's going to give... Verses 39 and 40 are like the concluding sentences of the whole chapter. So here's the, here's the uh, confrontation. Basically, he's just saying, And hey, Corinth, since you elevate tongues, and it seems to be the women are taking over, if you don't like what I'm saying, guess what? It doesn't really matter. Um, because the Bible didn't come to you and Christ didn't come to you and have a face-to-face walk with you on Damascus and then tell you to do this. He t- gave it to me and I'm the one that told you. And so, and what I'm actually telling you in this direct quote is a command from the Lord. So if you don't like it, you know, you shouldn't listen. You shouldn't be, you shouldn't be listened to is what he says. Verse 36. Or is it you that the word of God came? Or was it you that the only one has reached? If anyone thinks that he is a prophet or spiritual things, he should acknowledge the things that I'm writing. Here it is to you are a command from the Lord. He's pulling the apostolic card on him. I'm the apostle, not you. So you have to listen to what I'm saying. And then he even says, if anyone does not recognize this, he should not be recognized. If anybody disagrees, don't listen to that guy. Listen to me. That's just, you know, you can think Paul's aggressive, maybe so, but truth is important to him, especially when it comes from Jesus, right? If Jesus Jesus told us something, we should guard that as absolutely true. And so He's not, I don't think he's a bully. I just think he loves truth. And then so he summarizes the entire chapter in verses 39 and 40. So my brothers, still calling them brothers. You know, we're still chill. We're friends. Don't get mad that I said that. Earnestly desire to prophesy. And don't forbid speaking in tongues. So he, he's not forbidding them ever. He gives guidelines for the service. He, I think he even says that probably not the best place is the service. And let all things be done decently and in order. Everything should be done in order. So as we're closing up, the main thing that we've seen as we've looked at these three chapters is that Paul's wanting to combat this public show of ecstasy. So, and we saw in chapter 12 that uh, there was a danger in the city of Corinth where somebody got up and they were being all public with their gifts. People would be like, wow, look at them. I mean, they must be really spirit-filled. Now that sounds like it's, you know, being sarcastic, but for them, that's really what they thought. If you're spirit-filled, then you're all out there and on this public display and everybody thinks, wow, you must be really spirit-filled because you're so public with it. And Paul's trying to combat that that says that doesn't necessarily equal being spirit-filled just because they're all public about it and trying to get everybody to see. Well, certainly if someone is doing something public and worshiping Jesus, that's great. But it doesn't necessarily equate with, with uh, spirit, being spirit-filled. But the problem that we've also seen with Corinth, especially in verses one through chapters 1 through 2, is they, they thought they were just amazingly wise. Like, I... We're so wise. Remember in chapters 1 and 2? You can read it over again. They thought they were amazingly wise. So they have these these two-fold problems. They think they're super wise when they're not. And they're acting out like they're super spirit-filled, affectionate for Jesus. But they probably weren't that either. And so we have a potential uh, to fall into two pitfalls. And we don't want to fall in either one of those two pitfalls. One can be super affectionate and emotional for Jesus, but lacking real depth and truth. But also someone who's super deep and truth-seeking, but lacks proper affections for Jesus. And we don't want to fall into either one of the Corinthian pitfalls. Instead, we want to be more of a striving for a whole person that does both of these things, super affectionate and emotional for Jesus and super deep and truth-seeking to know Christ. We want to have both of those things happening. So we want to strive here for both at Remedy Church. We want to be deep truth-seekers that when we know and understand the beauty and the depth of what Christ has done for us, then we are never lacking and proper worship-filled emotions for Jesus. But that both of those things are happening. As Jordan said, we remember the gospel and rest in it. And then from that, we want to be sent to rejoice in that. Respond appropriately in that. So as we gather together each church, each, each Sunday, there's three things that are always going to be present, right? The word of God, the spirit of God, and the people of God. The people of God. The word of God is our guide towards truth, towards knowing Christ. The spirit of God is the one that leads us into knowing these things, but also the people of God, where when it lands on us, we find ourselves affectionate And the spirit. He does both things. He brings us truth and he inflames our heart for affections. And so we have these things here present with us, helping us respond, not just here for an hour, but for the rest of the week. So 168 hours a week. That's pretty quick math, right? I already had it memorized. Um, That we are, every hour of the week, we're every hour of the week knowing Christ and loving Christ. We're gonna go into a time of the Lord's Supper. We have the perfect opportunity to do that. Think on and remember and rest in what he's done. And then as we take the Lord's Supper, let that be a time where we express emotions and affections towards Jesus, both in our mind and our hearts and even through singing and worship. So I'm gonna pray and then we'll go into the time of the Lord's Supper together. If you're a believer in Christ, this time is for you. If you're not a believer in Christ, we just ask that you would observe. If you're new, make sure that when you come forward, you note there's cards in front that one's wine and one's juice. Get the one that you want. When you get the elements, just bring them back to your seat and then we'll take the Lord's Supper together uh, as a corporate body. So I'm gonna pray and then we'll go into the Lord's Supper together. Jesus, thank you so much for this time. Thank you so much for this word. Thank you so much for your word. And Lord, I I pray that uh, as we... Finish the service and really good for the rest of our week, God. That we would not be divided people, we would not be uh, half people. That we would not fall into the Corinthian pitfalls, but that we would love you and love truth and love knowing you as deep as possible. And then when we see the beauty and and have a full understanding of who you are and what you've done, that it would move our affections. It would move us to respond appropriately in whatever way we're wired. They give you the glory that you deserve. We ask now that you be with us as we take the Lord's Supper and that would happen. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.